This is the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel, bringing you the best tactical and statistical analysis of Liverpool FC. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Analyzing Anfield, your tactics and analytics podcast, courtesy of the Blood Red channel. I'm Josh Williams and I'm not joined by David Hughes this week. I'm not joined by Guy Clark. I'm joined by Mo Stewart. How do you feel, mate, ahead of your Analyzing Anfield debut? I feel good. A mixture of nerves and excitement, kind of like a new signing. Although, to be honest, I'm a little bit worried. Well, I'm kind of glad there's no one around here for me to turn around and headbutt. So I think I'll probably do better than Darwin did in his early days. But yeah, looking forward to the show. Well, it's funny, actually, because uh, the way we've been describing the the happenings on the show lately in terms of hosts is in a Liverpool context. So I've, we've been describing Dave as Firmino. He's okay. kind of been around for a few years doing this thing. Maybe he's drifting off the off the scene a little bit now. And Guy Clark was getting described as Jota. So I suppose in that oh. context, you are probably Nunes, mate. Mm, maybe. Although I actually think I'm probably more Diaz because I've kind of been around longer than you realise. Yeah, you're probably right there. Yeah, you're probably right, mate. I mean, I'll take either. To be fair. Yeah, I mean, they're both top players. Maybe maybe Diaz is the better option, considering what Nunes did the other day. Um, but we are going to get on to that anyway. Today we're going to talk about the Palace results, the Palace performance, what happened, bits around the performance and things. We've got a little bit of news regarding Abby Keita that we should address. And then, obviously, a simple look ahead to Manchester United. Relatively big game. Um, but, yeah, first up, we'll go back to Palace, uh, touch on what happened I personally expected a big result. I thought Liverpool would right the wrongs of the previous week. Performed relatively okay, I thought, but the result obviously wasn't what we wanted. Um, so without going too detailed, what, what was your general thought on just what happened, Mo? What, what were your thoughts, mate? It, it was strange because I went in with all of that same optimism. And for the first half an hour, I maintained that optimism because I think the, what was lacking at Fulham was intensity and the first home game of the season on TV, on Monday Night Football, you expect them to show that kind of intensity. And they did. You could see that the energy was back and the crowd responded. So I was comfortable. I was happy. I'd have liked us to make more of one of those good chances or semi-good chances. But then obviously goals change games. And that goal certainly changed the atmosphere in one fell swoop. And Suddenly, you're just thinking, okay, we've still got this. We've still got this. Another game we've gone behind. We didn't need to go behind. And then there's a sending off again, which is another knock. And then suddenly it becomes a very, very different kind of atmosphere. It's a lot more frantic, a lot more desperate. And I think that played out a little bit on the pitch. Luckily, we've still got the guys with the star quality to pull off our goal. But in terms of building up patterns of play in order to get a result, it really wasn't quite as good. Yeah, I agree pretty much, really. I think Liverpool's performance generally was, was quite good. It was pretty intense, dominated possession, um, played the majority of the game in their final third, really, and created a lot of chances. You know, Liverpool's shot count on the day, 24 shots. Uh, Palace only posted seven. And I think Liverpool posted as, as many as 17 in the first half alone. And I think, I'm pretty sure in saying that 17 in that first half is the most Liverpool have posted in the first half of a Premier League game since about, I think, in about two years. So it kind of captures that Liverpool were really on it. But obviously, Wilfred Zaha got in. 
and uh, and and got ahead for Crystal Palace really, and I think it kind of stemmed a little bit from Nat Phillips having to play in place of Joe Gomez. Mm. That's the downside of playing with a centre half who exposes and as quick as you need to be to play a high line, and you know he hasn't got the rhythm in his game yet, so it kind of set things back a little bit. Then the Unes get sent off, and I still think Liverpool were great after that. I thought Liverpool played roughly the same game as they were before, going down to 10 men. Hmm. Got a goal back and things, but it just wasn't enough in the end. But yeah, it's a, it's not a great start, is it, Mo? No, and it, I always think it's weird when, when you come out of those kind of games disappointed where we've made all the play, had lots of shots, lots of opportunities and didn't get the result we want. Because I look at it from the other perspective of Crystal Palace. They kind of got what they wanted. They kind of did. Even when we were dominating the ball and not scoring, that's kind of what their game plan was. Like, they knew that that was going to happen. When you set up 4-5-1, you're there to defend and then spring. And that's exactly what they did. So as much as we can say 85% of the game was as we wanted it to be, they could probably say the same. (laughs) And so you get this really weird dichotomy because I'm really interested in those whole shots thing. It, it looks like we're getting in, look, getting into good positions. We're able to get shots off. But at the end of the game, we had four shots on target and Palace had three. And, yeah. and it's like the quality of those chances that we're giving up is not comparable with the charity of the chances that we're creating. And obviously, when you're pushing forward as much as you are, we are, you're going to leave spaces. But we need to find a way to tip that in our favour a little bit more, I think. And I don't know what the, how that is. I don't know what you reckon. No, I agree, and I think if you if you look at the the expected goals behind the shots that Liverpool created, offers a bit more of a maybe a bit more of a telling picture on on what happened. So although Liverpool generated twenty four shots, those shots were only worth about one point seven expected goals. Palace, for context, only generated uh, seven shots, but their their shots were worth about one point five expected goals. So what that kind of suggests is the shots that Liverpool have aren't really particularly valuable. They're not really close to goal. Pot shots, if you like, at times. Mm. Whereas Palace didn't generate much, but when they did, you know, they benefited from the odd little 1v1 and things. And Zaha's goal was a 1v1 with Alisson. Um, Fully enough on that, I mean, we might as well touch on it. What were your yeah. thoughts on, on the goal that we conceded and whether you've got any criticism maybe that you'd level towards Van Dijk? It's interesting. I think that's the way he's been doing it for a while. And I can you can see an issue with it. You can see why he's doing it. He's trying to show him down onto the, his left-hand side. He's trying not to dive in because arguably he dived in against Fulham and gave away a penalty. So maybe that was in yeah. his mind as well. He's trying to show him away from goal. But he's not doing it with that pace and intensity that kind of closes down Zaha, makes him make a decision on the spot. He actually allowed him in on his inside, because that's exactly how he scored it. So there's been times where you look at Van Dyke and you think that he's he's maybe not having to extend himself as much, or maybe he should sometimes. And maybe you get into this role where you don't really have to go at 80, uh, 100% in order to deal with something. And if you're doing that all the time, sometimes you get a little bit too comfortable at 80%, and you don't recognise when you need to go up to 85, 90. And... I think he's a little bit guilty of that sometimes. But again, these feel like very, very, very small things and a very, very, very large thing. I think when you look at the goal itself, I think the lack of recovery speed from Phillips or from Gomez, Gomez has that Phillips doesn't, 
would have made a big difference. I think having two of them back there to deal with would have made it a lot harder. And again, I, I feel almost cruel blaming Phillips for not being able to run as fast as fast people because, you know, <laughs> he can only run as fast as he can. Uh, and, and in terms of being caught out in the positioning, I think that's just the way we play. So I think had any other defender, Gomez, Matip, Canate been there, they'd have been standing in the same position. They'd have just been able to get back. Yeah, I think you can put a little bit of blame off for being your shoulders. I don't think he's made the best start to the Premier League season. But having said that, his partners have been all over the place, I suppose. So that's part of the reason. And, and Eze is a difficult player to stop at the end of the day. But I do yeah, think he quite a few of them. <laughs> yeah, I mean he's a he is a player. I do like him a big fan of Eze and especially when it comes to closing down players like that. Some players just aren't phased by it, and I think he's one of them. He just kind of uh, just drifts through, doesn't he? But like Grealish. Yeah, yeah. And and you, you, you see those players and as they're developing uh, an intelligence, because like I said before, that was such a key part of Palace's game plan. He was almost in that position already while we're attacking, and he knew he was more important to the team going that way than he was trying to get back into position and stop the ball from going in the net, which they were able to do anyway. Yeah. I mean, when when Vex is doing what he's doing, I do, I do think he's conscious of, uh, of Zaha caught inside. I think he naturally gives Alisson the else he wants, like typically wants, basically. And I think usually those result in saves and we just kind of move on and accept that we do tend to face one of at least one of those per game, but mm. in this case, I think Zaha's finish is just top quality. I think he, yeah. you know, it's in, in, in off the post, and there's not much Allison can do there. I think Van Dyke does what he usually does in that situation. It's just one of them. And then, at the time, I did think that Liverpool would would still have enough to come back and win the game, but Nunes did what he did. Um, I mean, we don't usually touch on things like that on this podcast, but what was he doing? I mean, it's hard to analyse the game without it, though, isn't it? I mean, because it was such a seismic event in the game. I mean, I've watched him sporadically for Benfica, Champions League and in the Primera. There are plenty of defenders in Portugal who wind up strikers. This isn't literally the first time this has happened to him. So why Pepe's over there, isn't he? I mean, exactly. (laughs) So why he reacted this time, I honestly couldn't tell you. Um, Yeah. It's it's frustrating for so many reasons. One, I felt like if he stayed on the pitch, he probably would have scored. I feel like yeah. he was still caused. I mean, he wasn't as uh, much of a live wire as he was against Fulham, but he was still definitely causing them problems. And I'd have backed him to continue to do so. But then on top of that, it's the fact that it's a straight red card. It's a three-match ban. It's a massive interruption into his development at the absolute worst time when... There's not really much else in the cupboard to replace him. So when you put all those two things together, it's yes, it's a split second, heat of the moment, um, lapse of concentration. But in terms of its impact, potentially massive. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, you know, on the back of it, there was lots of um, posts, maybe going on social media, Saying like welcome to the Premier League and things like that. For me, that's a load of nonsense. I think he, he's the, the, the lad's from Uruguay. He, he'll have grown up plenty used to um, getting messed about by centre halves and things like that. This won't be a new thing for him. So no. I don't think we've got anything to worry about in that sense. But, and, and I do think, well, if you look at why Liverpool have signed them, 
I have seen the odd mention from maybe Linders or Klopp describe him as like a, a warrior at times, mm-hmm. right? And I think that spirit that he's got in him obviously blowed over a, bit, a little bit and, and kind of overflowed and went too far. But that type of person that he is is part of the reason Liverpool were interested in him. You know, he's, he's got that kind of in the, the intensity, basically. You know, yeah. he's, he's got that element to his personality. And obviously it went too far. Klopp will ensure that it doesn't happen again. But in terms of him being that type of character, I suppose, who's willing, who's up for a fight almost, and, you know, that sort of thing, a bit like a Suarez or a Diego Costa or whatever. Yeah. I don't mind it as long as it doesn't, as long as it doesn't cost the same results like that. Diego Costa was genuinely the best of this I've ever seen. And yeah. that was because he never used to be the one who'd get sent off. He'd get a yellow card occasionally. Yeah. He would always end up on the pitch smirking as his uh, defeated rival gets sent off or gets carried off or whatever. Um, But it's a fine line and you have to know the referees. So as much as he might have had it from defenders before, maybe how the referees deal with it, he's got to get used to. And that's hopefully something that they're relaying to him in the dressing room right now. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. I wanted to touch on Aside from the red card, Nunez's performance, because I think that's kind of what's made it almost feel a bit worse, is that it wasn't just a red card, it was that he, he didn't score and he seemed to snatch at a few chances. I sent out a newsletter on this during the week just to kind of clear up people's concerns, maybe. Because I think I think there will be the odd person out there who is reluctantly thinking, have we signed a flop here? But I, I, I'm pretty sure that this lad is... It's a matter of time before he kind of explodes, personally. Um, if you look at his performance so far, he is currently top of the league for shots. And that's despite playing 97 minutes of the season. Um, second for shots is Gabriel Jesus, who's played a lot more than him mm-hmm. on eight shots. Cristiano Ronaldo's got seven shots. Erling Haaland's got six. Son Heung-min has got six. Uh, Harry Kane has five, Mo Salah has five. So the fact that Nunes already has nine mm. suggests to me that he's kind of hoovering up these chances but just naturally just when he's in the penalty box and things. And his attempts on goal as well have generally been really close to goal. Um, yeah. For expected goals so far, excluding penalties, he is top of the league again. Uh, second is Jesus, third is Rodrigo at Leeds, fourth is Haaland. Um, and I think one of the things, one of the mentions that I, I put in the uh, the newsletter is that four of his attempts so far have been in the um, the six yard box, and Salah last season posted thirteen shots in the six, six yard box all season. Yeah. Um, so it, I think for me, it's not great. It's not a great start. His finishing has looked a little looked a little bit iffy so far. He's looked a little bit nervy, maybe. But his nature is captured by those numbers for me. And, and mm-hmm. if he keeps doing that, if he keeps being Nunes, he will just score He will just score goals. He's just what he does, but he just needs to make sure he's on the pitch to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's the most important part right now. It's funny, just listening to you talk about him then, you know who came to mind? Salah. Like, yeah. Salah's first yeah. season. Like, people talk about Salah's first season as being one of the most electrifying things we've ever seen. It took him about three or four games to kick in. I think it was after we lost 5-0 at City. Because I remember that was another game where he missed a couple of chances. And people were saying, is he someone who gets a lot of chances, misses, 
needs a lot of chances to score a lot of goals. And then suddenly they weren't saying that anymore. I feel like this could be a very similar situation because like you say, at the moment he's getting the chances partly because his teammates are looking for him because they know they want to get him up and running. But also he's got those instincts. He knows the, the, the movement that he shows to be able to be in those six-yard box positions to be able to get the shots away. When defenders are trying to block the angles at every turn, that's what's going to get him the volume of goals, I think. Yeah, I agree. I think it's just a case of like... There was a point in the game fairly early on where he, a ball was put into the box, might have been a set piece or something, and the ball comes through him at the back post. He's on his own. It's on the volley. And he, he scuffed at it. And although that can be frustrating, we need to kind of shift the thinking towards that being a massive positive that he's even got that chance. Because if he keeps getting those, the goals will come. It's just exactly. It's just the way things work. The issue is... Sometimes mentally it can get in a player's head. He starts to doubt himself and he stops getting in those positions and then it can spiral. But I think Klopp just needs to kind of ensure that the the missed chances don't affect him, the red card doesn't affect him and he can just keep being himself, basically. I think that's right. And in a way, I was hoping the best thing for that is for his other teammates to start winning games. So he's not thinking, if I miss this chance, we don't win the game. Because that's yeah. when you do start to put too much pressure on yourself. Hopefully, that won't be the case going on for future. Like, what if while we're while he's out, one of our other players, maybe Mo Salah, hopefully Mo Salah, probably Mo Salah, gets on the floor <laughs> and, run, and in those three games, and then suddenly it's a very different team he's coming back into. Yeah, well, I actually sent a newsletter out last week saying that, and it's it still applies this week. Through his first two games, Liverpool actually haven't held the lead yet. Um, they haven't benefited from being in the lead. And I think considering what he's like, specifically a player who thrives on the break, he's very quick, we know that, he likes balls in behind. You can just do that a lot more when you have a lead. And Liverpool haven't benefited from that yet. So he's, he's had to um, get in these scoring positions when the penalty box has been a bit clogged and things like that. And even despite those limitations, he's still doing it. You know, I've just said he's top of the league for shots. So... Um, I don't think he's he's a problem. I don't think there's anything to worry about there and like that. I just think it's a matter of time before he probably explodes in a goal scoring sense rather than a head button sense. Um, <laughs> no, I, my prediction is for the derby. By the way, would well, would you would you have any reservations to to play him though, considering the nature of the derby, the intensity of the derby? I mean, if it's his first game back, perhaps maybe from the bench. But yeah. otherwise, although to be honest, <clears throat> that's the easy way to kind of solve any fears about that in one fell swoop, isn't it? If he can survive the derby, then it's like, okay, he can survive anything. Because yeah, they yeah. will absolutely be trying to wind him up. But I, I don't know. I, I, I feel like he's someone who, who can thrive in that atmosphere. I feel like maybe there's just the early, early nerves of his first start at home, wanting to get off to a good start, feeling anxious it wasn't. That's why I bowled over. But having seen this and having this now highlighted and him now being aware of having to curb that and channel it properly, yeah, I think he's going to take off. And yeah, unfortunately, Everton fans, he's going to be another one of our players you absolutely hate. <laughs> Adds to the long list. Yeah. Um, but yeah, before we move on, I just want to touch quickly on Joe Gomez. I thought Joe Gomez was very, very good when he came on. Very relaxed, very reassured. And I think just tactically, 
it was a it was night and day really compared to what what Phillips offered. I thought Phillips generally was was all right. I thought he was you know he he, he provides a certain level and he's reliable and he's he's an honest player and things. But tactically, because he's not, if you put Phillips in a one v one against Wilfred Zaha, Wilfred Zaha is probably winning most of them. I think up against someone like Joe Gomez though, because of Joe Gomez's one v one ability, mm-hmm. he just allowed Liverpool. I thought to keep attacking. Almost like they still had ten men, uh, eleven men, whereas they didn't. They had one fewer man, and that was because of Gomez's ability to just kind of hold the fort next to Van Dijk and just basically say to everybody else, "You can go on attack." Definitely. I mean, I was listening to some of the Palace fans talking on the radio after the game, and they said, despite the fact he scored the goal, the one that he missed and his lack of hold-up play, they weren't really happy with Zaha. It was almost like he was. They, we shackled him a little bit too easy, apart from the time we didn't. And yeah. when Gomez was on the pitch, you could see it's just the, there is just a different mindset with everybody else. There was a lot more comfort. And one of the things I always notice about Joe Gomez is his passes. Like when we're trying to go from left to right through the team to kind of create the space, he when it gets to him, he punches it in down towards yeah, yeah, the yeah. side. So not only has Trent got the ball in front of him to run onto, you can actually take the time to look up before he gets to the ball so he knows exactly what he's going to do when he gets there. And also, the way that Joe kind of has that right-back kind of knowledge and experience as well, late in the game when Trent was deciding that he was going to be the number nine, Joe was kind of covering both positions. He, like, if Matt was there, I really don't think Trent would have had the confidence to go into those positions. No, it's a great point, actually, yeah. I think a lot of people pointed out that Trent was basically... I mean, he was <laughs> he was kind of like a number 10. For the for the uh, for the remaining twenty minutes of the game, and it was quite weird considering Liverpool were down to ten men. But you know, you are right that Gomez almost occupied two defensive positions there, and you know he does have experience on the flanks because of his days as a fullback. And as I said, he's great one v one, very quick, composed on the ball. So um, it'll be nice to see him get back to the, get back to playing regularly. Basically, I've got no issues with Gomez playing. I think he's great. I think he's easily same level as uh, as Matip and. Canati for me, I don't think there's any any drop in standard there. So if we can take him to Old Trafford, that'd be great. Um but before we even move there, we have Nabi Keita news that has emerged that is a little bit surprising, I thought. Um coming out of Sky Germany, apparently he's a little unhappy with his game time. Contact expires next summer, and it's not a set that he's gonna sign anything, apparently, or you know, along those lines. So what are your thoughts, Mo? Were you surprised or? Um, in some ways, I was surprised to hear he him vocalise that he's unhappy. But in some ways, not really. I mean, if we look at Naby in general, he is, I always say he's probably the most fascinating player in our squad because how we were nearly five years into his Liverpool career and still no one can really nail down if he's 100% been a good player or he has been a disappointment. And everyone has their own biases based on what they thought he should be, what he what he actually is, etc. Yeah. Th- from my perspective, winding the clock back 12 months, we were all saying it's a big year for Naby. He's got to prove that he can be relied upon to be available for games to get that new contract. And then you look at his last season, he was available. Like, he missed very few games through injury. And he was in the squads more often than he wasn't. I think 47 out of the 62 games he was in the squad. And so he was available. 
But at the same time, you look at it and say that in terms of how much he was actually on the pitch, he was well behind Henderson and Fabinho, for example, and a little bit behind Thiago as well. So he can think, okay, well, I proved myself. I was available, but you didn't put me on. So I can see from his perspective why, but it's from Liverpool's perspective, they're very much, I can't see a world where we decide to sell him this window unless it's selling him to a certain team in Germany who have a certain English midfielder who might be looking <laughs> in the other direction. If he wants to leave for free, though, what would be the the, the feeling for yourself? Because I'm, as you say, he's a fascinating player and I think when it comes to the Liverpool fan base, he does split it a lot. So if he was to depart, I'm not, not that sure how I feel personally. I mean, one thing we have to always acknowledge, I think, is that Liverpool midfielder for Liverpool is the hardest position to play. Like Trent's doing lots of things and spinning lots of plates, but he kind of invented that himself. Actually, playing midfield for Liverpool because of the way Trent works is so much of a harder job, and that's a thankless task at that as well. Because what you could find very similar to Genie Wijnaldum. People will be saying, oh, well, he doesn't get enough goals. Oh, he doesn't get enough assists. Look what he's doing for Holland. Why isn't he doing that for us? And it's like, well, there's a reason because I'm not being asked to do that. It's a very different job. And I yeah. think going back to what we were saying before about looking at Naby's stats when he was at Leipzig and seeing that he was doing all these key passes and assists, but also all these tackles and interceptions. And you, you think he's this guy who does it all, but he had a very different role in that team. In terms of... Do I think we would miss him without him? Yes, I do. I think that it's very underrated how he's actually able to influence games. I don't think we can all recall like the Nabby game, like how everyone's always got like the game that one they won the game on their own, it seemingly. But he's been really important in a lot of big wins, even if you haven't necessarily been the one talking about. So You'll miss him when he's gone, but he's not necessarily in the top of the echelon. So it's a really difficult one for the manager to kind of square because you're telling him that um, you 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 rate him. Like there was an article from Neil Jones that came out yesterday that said that Klopp thinks that he's still in, the, in his first three, uh, in his in his first choice eleven. So he's telling him that, but he's not actually putting him on the pitch. And so you can look at it and say, well, he's still valuable to Klopp. Klopp still wants him. He still played in some big games. But Naby, can, you can look at it and say, well, it's not enough. Especially if that English fellow that I mentioned before is coming in next year. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. I think, uh, I think with Keita, I would like to keep him at the club. Obviously, I would like to keep him around the squad. But I don't know. I, I think I would have been surprised if you'd have said to me when he signed that a you know in a couple of years' time a thirty-one-year-old Jordan Henderson will be keeping him out the team. Mm. Uh, I I would have been surprised if you'd have said that to me. He's now twenty-seven, Kater. I've got no issues with him when he's on the pitch. Um. You know, in terms of numbers, he generally does contribute across the board. He's in the 92nd percentile across Europe's top five leagues for tackles, 90th percentile for pressures, does a lot of ball carrying, a lot of progressive moving, can dribble, um, scores the odd goal. So 
I think generally across the board, he, he is that kind of modern um, Red Bull product in, in yeah. the middle of a park, basically. But the issue is just whether... I don't know. I don't know if he's got like an element of trust with, with Henderson because of what Henderson is like as a person and then maybe he has a, a little bit less with Cater or whatever. But I don't know what it is. I don't think Klopp's got an issue playing Cater. It's just when everybody's fit. He seems to be fourth choice for me rather than third. And we don't have four midfielders on the pitch, so he ends up being the first sub. Um, Man, it's I a difficult one. It is. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and that's the thing, isn't it? You can look at it from both perspectives and say, Klopp is telling him that he still needs him and he still values him. But like you say, he would have expected to have been in the head of Jordan Henson by now. In fact, he, he might have even been secretly miffed when Henson signed the new contract. But that's something that Naby himself can't control. And maybe that's where the frustration comes. And you see, like, another close friend of his in the dressing room has just moved on for a new challenge. Maybe someone else who felt like he was not quite... Uh, on the, the appreciation level with some of the other peers in the team. So you can see how those conversations and how those thoughts start to fester. But whether or not he'd get it better anywhere else, that's another question. Because there are teams who would definitely have him in their team, but whether they're teams who are fighting for the very, very top of the very best trophies, I don't know. Well, I'm not sure if uh, if he did leave. I, I, don't, I don't think I'd be particularly worried that Liverpool are going to miss out on a special talent that we haven't yet seen. I think the the case that we have seen so far is is Naby Keita, in my opinion. And I don't think if we were to sell him, I don't think he'd go elsewhere and make Liverpool regress, not using him properly or whatever. I think he's always been a good player. But, yeah, it's, it's a weird one because if he did leave, I mean, I've just said I'd like to keep him on the squad. You can't really do that as much if he's unhappy with that role in the squad mm. so you would have to let him go and even if, if in that case he did go I don't know how gutter that'd be <laughs> I, w- I wouldn't I'd rather him stay but there are a lot of variables of them. Yeah. say it again there are a lot of variables though isn't it because <clears throat> yeah. it depends upon the other guys in the squad because that's really what normally happens is the reason we don't miss someone who is previously quite integral is because someone else has come through and taken their place. So if we see a season out of Curtis or out of Harvey, who are basically look like they're ready to take on a more a, a larger share of the midfield minutes, and then you add in a Jude Bellingham, then I don't think we will miss Naby. I, I think if we're asking or if we're asking to replace Naby with all new recruits, so if we're looking at bringing selling or letting Naby go in twelve months and then bringing in two new midfielders, that's a little bit more difficult. Because, I mean, we've already seen how long it takes people to integrate into our midfield to begin with. I mean, even Fabinho, we forget, took a while. I mean, we forget because it's almost been a while since we've actually brought a midfielder. (laughs) But yeah, it's something that takes a while for anyone to come into. So that kind of succession plan element of it, that's really important as well, I think. It's going to be interesting to see what Liverpool do because next summer, as it stands, it could be a case of Liverpool lose Milner, Oxlade, Chamberlain and uh, Cater in the same summer. Obviously, we're trying to get Bellingham by all accounts, but it will probably have to be more than just Bellingham if if Cater also leaves. So, it's an interesting one anyway. It's one to look forward to, maybe. It's one that we can talk about further down the line. Maybe we can tip a few player names who can potentially fill a void or whatever. But on a brighter note, 
Manchester United still <laughs> are very good. <laughs> um, they are currently bottom of the league, unless I'm mistaken. No. Um, and Liverpool play them next. How are you feeling ahead of this one? Um, I can see a lot of people who are now suddenly nervous about it because of how Liverpool have played. I'm here to ally those nerves because <laughs> we have played below our best and we still could probably say on chances and on possession, we should have won both those games. Manchester United cannot say that. Manchester United were well and deservedly beaten in both their games. And you can say against Brighton, there was a brief period after they got the goal back where maybe muscle memory and maybe fear would have spooked Brighton into conceding an equaliser. But it wouldn't have been through anything Manchester United have done positively. They're still a mess. And I don't think that they're going to mess that's going to untangle in a week. And I think it's going to get worse because they're going to have to deal with unhappy fans. It's going to be protests outside the ground beforehand. Hopefully only outside the ground and not on the pitch, guys. Um, but they've also got this whole Ronaldo situation. Is he staying? Is he going? Is it worth even picking him? So in terms of Eric Ten Hag sitting in a meeting with his players saying, this is how we're going to beat Liverpool. I've got no idea what he's going to say because I don't know if they can. But yeah, from a Liverpool think... perspective, we need to play better. That's all true. But Manchester United, whew. Yeah, you, you described them as a mess. I think that's that's a, a great way of putting it, really. They, they are absolutely all over the place at the minute. I don't know. I can't believe it, to be honest. I can't believe that. They've got a change in their in regime, not just in terms of the manager, but in terms of the man upstairs as well. And everything is literally exactly the same. They've, they haven't went and signed the players that they needed. Suffered two bad results at the start of the season. Everyone's now panicking and they're getting linked with the deadwood from throughout Europe. And the two highest earners at the club are the two players who conflict with Ten Hag's ways the most in uh, David De Gea and Cristiano Ronaldo. So, and both of them look highly likely to play against Liverpool. Yeah. It's, it, it could be a bloodbath if it, if it goes to plan from a Liverpool perspective. And from a United perspective, a lot of the time I, I don't even see how they get out their own half for, for, no. for a large periods of this game because they seem wedded to building from the back under Ten Hag. And they've got a goalkeeper who absolutely cannot do it and a group of midfielders who can't do it. And you're playing against Liverpool who, you know, are coached by Jurgen Klopp and have been for six years or so. Um, he's, His whole philosophy is founded on counter-pressing. And, and picking apart these possession-based teams who try to build through the thirds. So, tactically, I think this is a terrible, terrible game for United. And I said a few months ago, actually, um, when we talked about, me and Dave talked about the uh, the fixtures, fixture schedule. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing that Liverpool had United the third game of the season away from home. And I remember saying to Dave, putting a positive spin on it, saying Brighton and Brentford are not easy games. They could easily not win those games. And then they go into the Liverpool game under pressure. And that's exactly what's happened. Yeah. I mean, does anyone remember that Man United beat Liverpool 4-0 a few weeks ago? <laughs> seems, like, seems like a mirage, exactly. right, doesn't it? That, that didn't exactly. really happen. Um, but <laughs> you're right. I mean, it's a really hard spot Ten Hag finds himself in because we've already heard a few leaks 
from within the dressing room saying that they're not sure about this new style and they want to be more pragmatic against Liverpool because they're scared, as they should be, of being carved open like a can of tuna. But the fact is, is that this early into Ten Hag's reign, he can't relent. If he, if he, if he relents now at this stage, then his authority is done. And he knows that just as well. So he's going to have to force them to do the way he wants. So his only real grace is bringing in different players who may be able to do it. Like, I see the idea of having Christian Eriksen as a deeper line midfielder, but there's a reason he didn't do it for Tottenham. And there's a reason why every time Tottenham came to Anfield, he struggled. It's because of the other end. It's because we were swarming all over him. And in terms of defensively, in terms of being able to protect the ball, someone with such a technical ability, you'd expect him to be able to do it, he gets caught a lot. And that's something that they're going to have to reckon with if they keep playing in there. You already mentioned David De Gea. He's had some good games against Liverpool in the past, but at the same time, he has had some games where he likes to forget. And I do think that we are going to be able to, we're going to test him in a way that is hopefully going to crack. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. I, I think De Gea is their biggest, well, not, depends how you want to put this. I, I think De Gea is the worst fit in the squad for, for Ten Hag in terms of the players you start. I know Ronaldo's also a terrible, terrible fit, but De, De Gea, <laughs> it is bad, isn't it? I mean, wow. you know, At both ends of the pitch as well, almost like the two most important players. Yeah, massive, massive club as well, and it's, you know, most Premier Leagues and, and things like this, and it's, they're just an absolute mess, honestly. It's like appointing Pep Guardiola and, and putting, well, putting David Hare in goal and putting Cristiano Ronaldo up front. You've got a player there who won't press, won't defend for no matter what you do. And you've got a goalkeeper who, for the life of him, cannot build from the back. He, he has zero clue of, of what he's doing with the ball at his feet, De Gea. And... Uh, Ten Hag is is committed to doing it. You know he's from he's from Ajax. He's you know he, that that's what United will do. They're at home. It's a big pitch. Mm. I would be surprised if he suddenly started hitting long. You know, it's and, just... and the thing about that two two things about that one talking about Pep Guardiola. The first thing he did when he walked into Man City was get rid of Joe Hart. Yeah, for exactly yeah. the same reason. And this was at a time when Joe Hart's reputation was actually quite high. There was quite a lot of people who are wanting that move to fail. And then you had Claudio Bravo and it kind of did fail, but then you had Edison and it was like, oh, okay, I understand now. This is why we do these things. But yeah, in terms of De Gea and his position at the club and the years that he was their only good player and bailing them out, I've kind of bought him so much credit that now it's a really hard decision to go. But they knew Eric Ten Hag was coming into Manchester United. I'd like to think from a fair way away. They knew how he wanted to play. This is not a surprise to anyone that David De Gea can't play this way. So the fact that they let Dean Henderson go and they haven't found someone who can play this way in all this time, it's just negligent. It really is. Yeah, it's it's embarrassing. It's really, really bad. And, um, you know, Liverpool going up against this player knowing that he's going to build up like this, or he's going to at least attempt to, it, it can only result in, in positives for Liverpool because I don't, I don't see how Ten Hag can suddenly start instructing De Gea to start going long and things like that. So, 
I think Liverpool should get a lot of joy through through pressing Man United, and I think generally, if you look across Premier League history, this the same happened with Manchester City when Guardiola first took charge. Any team that suddenly starts to build from the back, and they are basically learning on the job, they will get pressed. They get pressed because you get joy out of it early on. Burnley were pressing Manchester City early on in the Pep Guardiola reign, but then they will get to a point where the they're too good to be pressed, and team eventually start backing off. Yeah. But in the early stages, they get pressed, and United are currently suffering from that. Brighton did it, Brentford did it, scored a goal immediately from it as well, and Liverpool will certainly do it. And if Ten Hag sticks to his principles, which I'm not sure, I mean, what can be win with that? Do you think it, it's Ten Hag's responsibility to adapt to the players at his disposal, or do you think it's Manchester United's fault for not adapting the squad to Ten Hag's needs? You know, there's two ways of looking at that one. Um, I would say more the latter, simply because I would Man, agree, United, yeah. Man United, obviously, I went through uh, a job interview with Ten Hag where he told them what he planned to do and they said, yes, we like this, we're going to give you the job. So they need to enable him to do the job and they haven't. Yeah. From, what, from what Ten Hag can do, he needs to try different players within that system. I think if he's going to persist with it and he, he definitely will, I don't know about who their backup goalkeeper currently is because I think Lee Grant's gone. I don't know who they've brought in, if they've got a young coach that they can bring in. But I'm not sure myself, actually, yeah. I'll, I'll but, I mean, I know that they've got James Garner, who they can bring into midfield, who did very well for Nottingham Forest last year and who's been pushing for uh, um, uh, a, a, a place in the side. Of Tom Heaton, of course, that's Tom who Heaton they're is, yeah. Tom Heaton, I mean, he's probably not a massive improvement in terms of playing with his feet. So that's no. a difficult one again. <laughs> but I think if you're going to, yeah, I think if you can't change the system, you have to change the personnel. In the scenario that you're at at the moment, I think, and like I say, when well, you're trying to lay down authority, you're trying to lay down a kind of a blueprint for how you want to play, then you can't be changing this early. And so they're going to have to find a new way. I don't think they will. And that's why I don't think they're going to beat Liverpool or get anywhere near. Yeah, it's it really is a terrible time for them to be facing Liverpool at the moment. If they start to stick with their principles and try to press Liverpool high, you've got Ronaldo probably leading that press, which doesn't bode well. And then you have Van Dijk, who has the passing range to just escape that press at, you know, at the drop of a hat, really, in the direction of Salah, who can then run directly at United's back line, probably. So um, there's lots of lots of weaknesses that United have that Liverpool can target here, I think. Um, yeah. It's a shame Nunes isn't going to be playing. I would have liked to have seen Nunes against Martinez to see against the... Um, does height matter? You know, that, that that big question. You know, where do you stand on that one more? I I think it's, it's difficult because I look at Martinez and how he was able to manage it back when he was playing for Ajax, there was a lot of kind of dark arts of him just kind of leaning into people and just, you know, positioning himself at the right time. And you may not get away with that quite as easily over here. We've already spoken about how referees can differ from country to country. So that might be something he has to deal with. But he maybe also wasn't dealt with being targeted in quite the same way as he has been here. Because admittedly, yes, Ajax are the, the biggest team in Holland. And so... If you're playing against them, you're going to try and find a weakness. But as a brand new shiny signing as centre-half for Manchester United, then you're going to be under a different level of scrutiny and people are going to be peppering you. And 
if you show any weakness, then they're going to try and continue until you don't. And in terms of Liverpool's profile, it's a shame. I mean, had he still been here, I might have even been tempted to put Divock up against him and see what he did with him. Because that's <laughs> one thing he's very good at at the moment is in terms of his hold-up play. Firmino's a different um, kettle of fish. He's, I mean, Firmino's good in the air, but it's he doesn't do that kind of backing in hold-up play in the same way. So it'll be interesting to see how we approach it. He's more the press monster trying to snap around his heels. So yeah, it might be only a set pieces that it comes into play. But I mean, a set pieces, it can definitely come into play. Yeah, I, I was thinking like myself, you know, Liverpool have got Van Dijk and, play, and players like that. So top deliveries from the flanks and things. Um, so that one's going to be interesting. But I think generally, Ten Hag's probably put a bit too much weight on the fact that Martinez is left-footed without considering this is England, he's five foot nine, and it will get targets is probably more so than it was in Holland. I do think generally he's, he's, he's a decent player, and I don't think I don't think his start has been as bad as people have suggested. But that is a a flaw that opposing coaches are going to identify. And, mm. I think, um, yeah, the irony for Martinez, if he'd have been playing at fullback or a defensive midfield in this team then I think he'd be looking a lot better. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, probably. Um, considering it's Mo's debut, though, and it's uh, a relatively... Well, it is it's a massive game, isn't it? We're going to do predictions. So um, <laughs> what are your thoughts, mate? Give give me a shout. Well, after all I've said, I can't really back down now, can I? Um, <laughs> I do think it will be a comfortable win for Liverpool. I Maybe we only score one in the first half, but a two clear two goals, so... 2-0, 3-1, something like that. It won't, unfortunately, be as glorious as last year, but it'll definitely be a Liverpool victory in my eyes. That first goal could be disastrous. That, that, if that first goal comes relatively early and it's, it's a bad goal to concede or something like that, it, it could be bad. Um, I'm going to say 3-0. I think United will generally struggle to escape their own half if they stick to that building from the back with David De Gea. Um, Ronaldo up front, you know, it doesn't work. It's, <laughs> It's a massive problem, that team. And uh, Liverpool are hopefully going to highlight all the flaws in it, like they did last season. So uh, <clears throat> I think we'll leave it there. So, Mo, thanks for appearing on, mate. No problem, no problem. I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, it was a, it was a strong debut. And uh, we'll be back next week. So thanks for tuning in. And we will see you then. You've been listening to the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel.